Welcome to Conversations with Inspirations, the Neurology Section Oral History Collection. My name is Britta Smith. I'm historian of the Neurology Section and your host for an interview with Carolee Winstein at Combined Sections Meeting 2013 in San Diego, California. Joining me for the interview today is Dr. Deb Larson, Director of the School of Allied Health Medicine and Associate Dean in the College of Medicine at The Ohio State University. She is also the current president of the Neurology Section. Welcome to our program, Deb. Thanks, Britta. Carolee Winstein, PT, PhD, and fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association, is a professor of biokinesiology and physical therapy and director of the Motor Behavior and Neurorehabilitation Laboratory at the University of Southern California. She is internationally recognized for her work concerning the functional neuro and behavioral basis of motor control and learning and its relationship to neurorehabilitation, especially for the recovery after adult stroke. Dr. Winstein is a member of the research and neurology sections of the APTA and has served as guest editor for physical therapy. Beginning in 2002, she was instrumental in helping to establish and direct the first clinical research network in physical therapy, funded in part through a grant from the Foundation for Physical Therapy. She co-chaired the program committee in three-step, a conference sponsored by the neurology and pediatric sections in 2005 that linked basic scientists with clinical scientists and practitioners. Dr. Winstein is Dr. Winstein is co-principal investigator for the First National Institutes of Health Clinical Trial for Upper Extremity Constraint-Induced Therapy Evaluation, known as EXCITE. She is also co-PI for an NIH interdisciplinary study of neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity and stroke rehabilitation. She has over 75 publications in refereed journals and just as many invited presentations. In her career, Dr. Winstein has been honored with some of the best and most prestigious awards in the physical therapy profession, including the Research Award from the Neurology Section, the Eugene Michaels New Investigator Award, the Marion William Award for Research, the John Malley Lecture Award, and the 2000 Mary McMillan Lecture. In 2012, she was honored with the Anne Shumway Cook Translating Neurologic Research to Clinical Practice Lecture Award at Combined Sections Meeting in Chicago. Welcome, and thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule, I'm sure, to join us today. Thank you, Britta. So, what inspired you to become a physical therapist? That's a difficult question. I don't think I followed the natural route into physical therapy. I... Uh, during my undergraduate days at UCLA, I uh, was a joint psychology uh, physical education major. And uh, I sort of wrote my own uh, package. And they had this opportunity, you could take classes in psychology, so I took classes in experimental psychology, and then the physical education program there later became the kinesiology program. So it was very sort of infused with, uh, with the science of, of movement. So I was kind of inspired as an undergrad. And uh, I had an extremely inspirational teacher named Judy Smith, who uh, had just sort of started at UCLA from Wisconsin. And she taught anatomy. 
And I got totally, totally hooked on human anatomy and physiology and uh, learned a great deal from her. Anyway, I graduated from UCLA and I sort of was thinking, how do I take what I've learned and, you know, use it? And uh, about a year before I graduated, my father passed away. Hmm. Uh, he had a major coronary at the age of 57. He was sort of at the height of his career. And uh, I saw my mother just sort of deteriorate. I mean, her whole life was my father. And this was, you know, the 50s where, you know, women didn't really have careers. They, you know, they were very much, you know, functioning for their, you know, their husbands. And I was, I grew up, you know, very in a very different sort of mindset and uh, was very career-minded myself, very independent. I was part of the, you know, the whole, you know, anti-Vietnam era, and I did not want that to happen to me. So I sort of thought to myself, I need a career. And, uh, and what can I do with this knowledge and enthusiasm for human movement and anatomy and physiology. And one route was go to, go to graduate school in biology. And the other route was go to physical therapy school. So I thought, you know, I could have a career relatively quickly. And in those days, this was in the 70s, PT school was, at UC San Francisco anyway, was uh, 14 months. You get they had a certificate program and they had a baccalaureate program. So I was going in with a baccalaureate. I applied to, I think, two PT schools at the time, Duke and UC San Francisco. And given the fact that I wanted to sort of stay near home and, mm. and watch my mom, I wanted to be close. I decided to go to UC San Francisco. So I went up there for PT school thinking, you know, I would be able to have a job and be relatively, you know, independent, making my own, you know, money uh, in about a year. Went up there and uh, was taught by some of the most uh, influential people, uh, gate control theory, uh, you know, this is pain, uh, pain people, uh, Rene Caillé, you know, and the whole sort of, uh, uh, gait analysis, but these were not physical therapists that were teaching those classes. The physical therapists were, you know, teaching more of the management courses. When I think about, you know, so I got inspired. I took, I went through PT school. It was relatively easy for me. I had such good background in neuroanatomy. I ended up sort of tutoring my classmates. We had a class of 20, maybe 20 people. 14, 15 people. And uh, we finished. I had three clinicals. They were a month long. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can relate to this. Yeah. Uh, and one of my clinicals was at Rancho on the spinal cord injury service. Where your first job was. Where my first job was. So that sort of started out. I got totally hooked. I went to Rancho. I was in a very unique environment. Uh, so I didn't really know what was happening in the general sort of field of physical therapy around the world, around the country. I worked there for 10 years. I uh, worked my way up. Um, and then I decided, you know, this is my last opportunity to really travel broadly. So I left my job. 
I sold my car. I, you know, I uh, teamed up with a friend of mine who was an OT, and I bought one of these round-the-world tickets that you could buy, you know, and I got and I said, okay, I'm going to work in England. I'm going to go work in, uh, in, you know, the UK for six months, and then I'm going to travel the world for the other six months, and then I'm going to come back and settle on something. So I did that, and I actually worked as a physio in Britain at King's College mm -hmm. Hospital. I had some great experiences there. One of the ones I remember the most is uh, they were doing nothing but NDT, and they didn't allow anything else. They absolutely did not allow it. So they, I was in the, the rehab gym, and everybody was walking around, you know, like this, you know, getting, <laughs> with their arms clasped forward their, from their chair with their arms clasped forward uh -huh. doing this rocking and then standing mm -hmm. up and the gait actually looked quite good but it was extremely slow and non-functional in terms of you know getting across the street and I was recalling you know what I had seen at Rancho during all my days there and uh, you know I think people were more functional but we used orthotics uh, and they didn't use any orthotics and barely used any equipment. But my sense of this comparison, this was like a, you know, like a little experiment, was that the, uh, the gait that I saw in England, there was much better hip control, but not very good ankle and you know, dorsiflexion control. And at Rancho, there was better ankle control and people certainly got their leg forward they put more weight on because they had braces so I kind of you know I sort of said to myself you know a combination of these two things would be you know the absolute best thing but I really I learned a lot it was great working in a different you know different healthcare system and then I came back to Rancho and uh, and uh, I was hired uh, as an as an instructor and so I did a lot of teaching, and uh, and but right there in the in the clinic. And at the same time, I decided to go back for my master's degree. It's a long answer to your question, but it's you know it's all sort of related. And I got inspired to go back for my further my education in large part because I wanted to be challenged to understand how to um, best facilitate learning in my patients. So and you had a clinical motivation to I go had back. a very strong clinical motivation after, you know, 10 years of clinical experience and this experience I had abroad. Uh, and when I came back, I had a supervisor, Jacqueline Montgomery, who really empowered me. She, uh, you know, really, you know, would sort of put me in situations where I had to sort of figure out how do I do this. Uh, and I was trying to create, you know, learning situations for the new clinicians. And, and I had, you know, I was able to interact with people on the different services. I was on the neurology service. Um, and I just was in a situation where I was sort of craving, you know, more knowledge. I'm a, I'm a very sort of analytic person. And I was trying to understand, where's the science? Where's the evidence? You know, how could I be doing this better? And I got very interested in, 
you know, in this concept of motor learning, which was not part of any uh, part of the curriculum in physical therapy schools at this time. So I went back for my master's at USC in the in the 80s, and I got it sort of part time. And uh, while I was still working with patients. And during that period, I went to a uh, pre-conference in Washington, I think, the pre-conference to an APTA meeting that that Ann Van Sant had put on. And she invited several key people to that uh, meeting to talk about motor learning. So she invited um, uh, Eric Roy, did a lot of work on apraxia. She invited uh, Ron Martinick, um, I think Dick McGill. So these were not physical therapists, but these were people in the field of motor behavior and motor learning. Uh, to talk about the perhaps the application of these concepts and these fields to the practice of physical therapy. And I got so excited. And then somebody said to me, well, you know, Dick Schmidt is in your backyard. And he's like the father of motor behavior, motor control, motor learning. And I didn't know. And uh, so it turns out he was at USC at the time and was just transitioning over to UCLA. And uh, so I was really, really excited. I sort of found somebody who potentially could be a mentor for me. And, uh, and so the rest is history. I then went back for my, I left Rancho in 1982. Uh, and I uh, started full-time as a graduate student at UCLA with Schmidt, uh, who I just had dinner with here, by the way. <laughs> Great. So your dissertation was on disordered locomotion. No. It no, was my, not. My master's work was on uh, inhibitive casting in locomotion. But my, uh, my PhD was on, uh, was on feedback and motor learning for upper extremity motor skill so how in, did you in come, healthy, normal people. How did you come up with that? Uh, well, I was interested in studying the effects of feedback on learning. And at the time, this was in the you know early '80s. Uh, there was still this notion that you know more the more feedback you gave, the better somebody would learn. But if you sort of unpack this and started looking at the you know the uh, sort of the guidance hypothesis, which 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 Dick had just sort of proposed uh, in the in the early '80s, that actually too much feedback could actually inhibit learning in that people would just depend like a crutch on the feedback and not develop an internal reference of correctness, which is what you really wanted to do. You wanted people to develop an internal sense of what was correct so that they could, you know, apply their own sort of uh, sense of what they should be doing and wouldn't just rely on that information. So in my dissertation, I tested this hypothesis that less feedback less frequent feedback could actually potentiate better retention of the motor skill. And, uh, and I ended up showing this 
and uh, and then uh, publishing the work actually finally in in uh, experimental uh, psychology, human movement behavior, in, in 1990 after I'd left and gone on to my postdoc. So this was sort of the evidence around this idea that less frequent feedback is better for learning. And you pursued this line of inquiry for a while. I pursued this line in then in with patients and uh, this notion of feedback frequency and what happens on trials where you don't give feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, getting into this idea that you know people are evaluating their performance. And, you know, and they're challenged to, you know, develop this internal reference of correctness. Um, This whole notion of faded feedback. So starting out early in practice with more feedback to kind of guide people to what they should be doing and then gradually reducing that feedback. That was what I'd done in my dissertation work. And then we took that and went further. And I have a number of my earlier papers with with students uh, looking at guidance and motor learning. So actually telling people where they needed to move and putting a stop, annual stop there and showing how, you know, that improves performance really well, but it, it's horrible for learning. People don't learn anything. I had, did a study on partial weight bearing where we actually gave people, you know, the amount of uh, weight they were putting on the scale. We were trying to train them. This was, you know, supposedly for an orthopedic task, you know, where they'd had a total hip or something and they had to you know, rehab, and they had, had to put, people are horrible at figuring out what to do. But if you give them too much feedback, you tell them on the scale, you know, here's where you are, uh, they show good performance, but the minute they have to perform on their own without the scale, they do horribly. So, and at that time, the standard practice was, you give somebody crutches, you know, they're in the emergency room, you give them crutches, you put them on a scale, you show them what they should be doing, and then you send them out the door and you assume that they're going to get it, you know, and they don't. So this was, you know, this had sort of implications, uh, you know, for practice. These and, concepts were sort of the mind-blowing part of two-step. Yes. Yes. And Good point. Tell us a little bit about how that, I mean, I remember being in, just starting my academic career and using the two-step compendium as a Bible mm-hmm. because this was really an incredible change in thinking. Yes. So two-step, um, I was kind of in the role of a... I can't even remember how they did this. I mean, I, I was fresh out of my postdoc uh, in, in Wisconsin. And, um, and two-step was... You know, it was a long time since, I mean, a new step was in 67 or 66, and this two-step was 91 or 90? I think it was 90. 90. So 1990. Uh, And so there had been a long period of time between these two meetings. And the goal, I think, for the neurology and pediatric section was to sort of do this, you know, sort of every 10 years, to really chronicle the changes in thinking and also the uh, the growth of the physical therapist who is now giving most of the talks. So if you go back to two-step, we had basic scientists, people whose disciplines we studied that would, we thought would inform our practice, but there were very few therapists actually on the program. And the big shift, I think, at two-step was now we had 
a few people in our profession who'd gone back for, you know, doctoral work with, you know, mentors that, you know, were not physical therapists, but were in the field of motor control, motor learning, uh, development. Um, the early people went and did, you know, uh, PhDs in anatomy. But we began to see people doing uh, doctoral work in fields that were more uh, sort of movement-related and could be related, I think, more to what the therapist does and what the therapist has to assess. And that was the one of the big changes. If you looked at the program for two-step, they were almost all physical therapists. And I fought very hard, to, no, that was, yes, to get Dick Schmidt on the program with me. And there was a little bit of, you know, resistance to that. Why do you think that was? I think it was because we were in this mode of, no, 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 we only want to hear from physical therapists. We're worried that the, you know, basic scientist, behavioral scientist, movement scientist is not going to really get what the physical therapist needs. But I won, and I convinced <laughs> people that, you know, we could do sort of this thing together, and that it would, uh, it would, it would be more, more translational. So he could talk about, you know, what the questions he has as a movement scientist, and then I could take that and say, and how do we translate this into, you know, principles of motor learning that could be applied, you know, in a clinical setting. And um, I remember when I first went to uh, work with him as a graduate student, and he said to me, I was his first physical therapist. So he had gotten graduate students from, you know, kinesiology and, you know, other movement science programs, but I was the first person that came with a clinical background. And so here was this sort of you know, person that he didn't really, and so he said to me, why would a physical therapist want to study in this area? And so that tells you something. In 83, you know, he was like, well, you know. So I said to him, well, what do you think physical therapists do? And he says, well, they work with, you know, hardware problems. And his concept of hardware were, you know, broken bones, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Total you know, knees. Yeah, total knees, total hips. And so I said, I said, well, there's a whole other field out here, which is, you know, neurology, where we have to work with people where the software has a problem. <laughs> and we have to, you know, create the right environment to get these folks to relearn or learn new skills. You know, so skill acquisition is a big part of what we do. And so I, I think it would be useful for me to understand, you know, and he was like, oh, he, he, he like hadn't thought about it that way. So he, so he said, well, that makes sense. And so he actually learned something about what physical therapists do that he then later incorporated, you know, into, you know, his books and, you know, and so that was, that was a mutually, you know, beneficial situation. So at, at Two Step, um, we did just that. Uh, he talked about, you know, conditions of practice for motor learning, and I then talked about, you know, uh, my work in feedback and how we could be incorporating this and that we, you know, and the, this whole learning performance distinction that people had a difficult time with 
which is that when you watch somebody during performance and you're giving them all this feedback or you're or there are all these bells and whistles going off with a some piece of equipment that you're confounding what they really have learned with the boost that you get in performance from all this feedback. And it's difficult to unravel those two things at that moment and know whether or not they've learned anything. So you need a retention test. You need them to come back and show you, okay, what can they do on their own without all the bells and whistles and the feedback? So this concept of a retention test, a performance learning distinction, which now is sort of fundamental, and anybody who studies learning sort of knows this intuitively, was very new. You know, we had people, you know, thinking that they would see learning right there, you know, at the moment. So this is a little bit, you know, um, you have to really think about it in order to understand it. And then how did that relate to how you, you know, treat a patient and how you evaluate whether or not they got it? So this was something fundamental, I think, that came out in two-step that people began, you know, really incorporating and uh, including. You are well known for your work in strokes. So when did your, uh, your early work in knowledge of results and feedback start transitioning from, I assume, a normal population to, a, to a, an abnormal, to use that word, Yes. Uh, how, how did that happen? So that, that's an interesting transition. And um, so when I first got to USC and I was uh, an assistant professor, I started uh, working with students. Uh, these were, you know, entry-level students because our doctoral program was still uh, sort of getting started. Um, but I did have a Ph.D. student right as I started at UCLA. At, at USC, uh, named Pat Pohl. And so she was, I was sort of building my lab and, uh, and mentoring her at the same time. She, you know, really took the ball and, and ran with it. And we started working with these students and doing this sort of guidance work. And then uh, we, uh, we decided that we really, you know, needed to transition. We needed to test some of these hypotheses in our patient population. And uh, so uh, my next graduate student was, was Kathy Sullivan. And uh, she was very interested in applying this work in stroke. And, uh, and we developed a collaboration with Alma Mirans. Uh, she had gotten a grant. So we took this work and we said, okay, we're just going to look at this in the less involved limb. We're gonna have people learn this skill and we're gonna uh, give them different levels of feedback. And, uh, and so that was sort of the beginning. And we showed that the stroke patients learned just as well. Their performance wasn't uh, quite as good, interestingly enough, with the uninvolved limb, but they learned just as well. And they did equally well in the less frequent feedback condition as in the 100% condition. So while it didn't uh, replicate my dissertation findings where the less frequent feedback group actually did better than the 100% group, it showed that we didn't need to be giving as much feedback as we were giving, and we could got, get the same level of learning. Uh, and, but this was with the uninvolved limb. So then everybody said, well, you've got you know, to look at the involved limb. And, uh, and that's when I sort of transitioned and started you know, doing studies more with 
you know, the Involve Limb and my later graduate students uh, did some very nice work. People are still working in this area of motor control, the Involve, the Uninvolved Limb, um, asking different permutations, different questions. And then the Excite trial came along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I can remember uh, Helen Hislop was my chair at the time. And I was you know, doing an, a, a lot of different, different work. But this was the first sort of clinical trial that, uh, that I had an opportunity to participate in and led by somebody that you know, I considered to be one of my mentors, Steve Wolf. And I wanted to, you know, learn how do I do this? You know, how do I coordinate this, you know, these, this number of people and participate in this uh, phase three NIH funded, you know, trial. The concern was it was, unfor- I thought it was unfortunate that the first approach that was put to the test of at a phase three level was this, you know, constraint-induced movement therapy that sort of flew in the face of everything I sort of believed in and thought was valid. You know, this sort of real, uh, you know, almost an operant conditioning, you know, approach uh, where this came out of. But I sort of, you know, decided that this would be a good experience for me. I'd learn a lot, and, uh, and we all did. We, I think we... You know, this was this was groundbreaking, really, and uh, and you know, learning how to uh, interact and work with you know NIH and work with colleagues that maybe don't uh, think about things in the same way. Uh, that was uh, you know that was a challenge, but at the same time, it really taught me a lot uh, about you know just working with people that had different opinions about things. And, uh, and we managed to, you know, get the job done and, uh, and you know, move it forward. And, uh, and I think it was fundamental to the growth of our profession, to the fact that, you know, you could have physical therapists uh, leading a very large, one of the, I think it was the first, NIH-funded phase three level trial um, in stroke rehab. Now there weren't that all the phase three trials were in you know drugs and devices and this was you know standard in the medical profession, but we hadn't gotten to the point in rehab where we had enough evidence to support anything that we were doing. And, you know, this was a time when people were building evidence for things and trying to define who they were and what their contribution was and, you know, how, how can we rehab people? And, uh, and so that was, you know, I, I can't speak more, you know, Deb probably has other thoughts on this, but we just, I think we had, we all learned a huge, huge amount. So how did it influence what you did next? And what did you take from it that you learned not to do in the next, <laughs> in the next round? Yeah. Yeah, I really uh, learned a lot about collaboration and uh, how science is done and how uh, sort of the culture of... Uh, cynicism about 
you know, results and how that can be turned into a positive. I've heard it said that the friction between people is what creates the sparks of yes. ideas. Yes, yes. And I think that's very much the case. And, uh, and I think, you know, letting go of and, you know, being able to laugh at yourself and, you know, not taking yourself so seriously is a very important part of collaboration and success in science. And so, you know, I, I, I wanted in the next round to, uh, to create an environment where people felt comfortable uh, being critical and challenging and that that was going to be the thing that pushed us forward. And, uh, and so I was, uh, began sort of discussing with my colleagues sort of the next step. And Steve Wolf really was instrumental in sort of saying to me, you know, do you want to take this ball and run with it? And, uh, and I had to do some soul searching because it's a huge responsibility. Uh, and it also, you know, takes a huge commitment. And you also have to assemble a group of people that you can work with effectively. And, uh, and I knew I could work effectively with Steve. Uh, and then um, we had had some interactions with uh, Alex Dromerick, who's a physician, but he's a, you know, he's a neuro uh, rehab physician. And so he has this mindset. And I think he himself had a, uh, it was either a head injury or some, some neurological issue early in his life. And that sort of, I think, motivated him to appreciate the rehab side of medicine. So he comes from a very, you know, personal sense of, of that. So we, the three of us, began talking about what's next. And uh, we began talking to, uh, to NIH folks and, um, you know, putting, putting uh, specific aims together and questions and, you know, coming off of Excite. And, uh, and I had a uh, small study that uh, had been funded at the RO3 level, a uh, pilot study from NIH, that the results of which were just getting published. This was a single site study at Rancho. It was an inpatient uh, rehab study. And we were comparing strength training, functional training, uh, and usual care. And uh, so I had the experience of trying to put an intervention into an already packed, you know, schedule for patients when they were inpatients. But at the time, uh, stroke patients were seen as inpatients in inpatient rehab for about four weeks. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that study, it started getting shorter and shorter. And so I learned a lot about the, you know, the logistics and the practical issues. And so as a consequence, we decided uh, that we would inter, uh, intervene uh, in the recovery phase. We wanted to intervene earlier than Excite, but we didn't feel that it would work if we put it very early. And Alex had already done a study in acute care. So we thought this gap in knowledge is this early one to three months post-stroke, but as soon as the person gets into outpatient therapy. So we decided both from a conceptual and also a practical standpoint that this would be the, the, the time frame 
uh, for this, this uh, intervention. So we designed a study. Uh, it went through NIH review. Uh, we had a reverse site visit, which is when you go to Washington and the uh, study section, or in this case, the special emphasis panel, uh, interviews you. And uh, so I think preparing for that uh, was a real growth experience for me. Um, Dan Hanley was the chair of this uh, special emphasis panel. There were two statisticians on it, and um, and two clinical. And I'm blanking now on who else was there. Well, if you think uh, of it, just just yeah. add it in. We anyway, it. <laughs> uh, we our team went, including our uh, data management center. Uh, Stan Azen and, uh, uh, and Phil Miller. And, uh, and we you know, went to Washington. So we got a score that was um, not fundable, but they said, but it was clearly a message, we want to see this back. And they had a number of very constructive uh, suggestions for us. We then put in a uh, revision. It got a very high score but just under the threshold. And now, you know, with only one, uh, one uh, possibility for revision, we would never have done the trial, but at the time, this was in uh, 2007, um, they, I talked to my funding officer, Scott Janice, and said, you know, does this mean I need to put in a revision? He said, yes. So I put in a revision, very, very small changes. And uh, we got a, it was in the one percentile. And it was funded. We started this uh, eye care trial in, uh, in uh, 2008. And uh, so this has been a big, and we're in our fifth year. And we're just about ready to finish uh, the uh, Rent the last sub. We have seven more people to go out of 360. We have seven sites in the United States. This is a multiple PI. So Steve Wolf and Alex Stromerick are PIs along with me. We're the primary site uh, and the administrative core. And we've had an opportunity to just work with some unbelievable people, clinicians, and you know we have teams. You know each site has their own team and uh, it's been fabulous and no matter what we find you know it my sense of this is that it's been a real growth for myself for everybody that's been involved in this and uh, and and the and the profession so the eye care the eye care study does that focus on strength training uh, motor learning was that it and then quote usual care so um, eye care uh, stands for interdisciplinary comprehensive arm rehabilitation evaluation, uh, and it is a, a three-arm study. Uh, it's got the putative intervention, which we call accelerated skill acquisition program, and this is really uh, a hybrid of the components that are uh, that were uh, part of the EXCITE trial, um, but are, I would say, more modernized. And we're, we have three major uh, 
constructs that we bring together in this intervention. Um, capacity building, which includes strength training. Mm -hmm. uh, motivational enhancements, which includes all of the uh, fundamental psychological needs that we just gave the session on this morning. Uh, and skill acquisition. So those three major components are the foundation for the intervention, which is structured. So that's how it's somewhat different. Uh, and that is being compared. So there are 30 sessions mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we basically play out those three constructs. It is a principle-guided intervention. So our manual of procedures uh, basically plays out, we have eight fundamental principles that, we, that, that the, the clinicians who are administering this are paying attention to. Uh, and those are, have just been published in our protocol paper. So uh, in BMC Neurology, we actually list uh, the eight principles and the, the, a little bit about the structure of the intervention. The details of the intervention are embargoed uh, for reasons that we do not want to get uh, contamination of the usual and customary care group. Um, and so we're, we have not been real, uh, we have not disseminated those pieces yet. Um, but we do have that information that's in this recent paper that just came out uh, about a week ago. So that, that, there's that group. There is uh, a dose-matched uh, usual and customary care group. So they get 30 visits of outpatient therapy. And then we have a usual care group where we're just monitoring them during the same time period, and they're getting whatever they get. Actually, NIH was very interested in that group. We were like, we don't want to waste people in that group, you know. And, uh, and they said, no, 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 we want to know what's going on. You know, what, you know, and we think, we think the number of visits is going to be all over the map and it's going to depend on all kinds of things like insurance, insurance. and, mm -hmm. you know, who their physician is and what part of the country they're in. And so we're going to have some interesting, I think, findings from that. So there are 120 people in each of the groups. We, uh, we have baseline, post, 30 weeks, uh, then we have six month and one year follow up. Our outcomes are being based on the one year follow up. So we're really interested in do these things make a difference in the long run, not you know do we get these short term changes. Now, have you had a aha moment in uh, in the mo related to motor learning or re stroke rehabilitation? I think I continue to have aha moments. Um, I think the, the most recent aha moment, and you know, I do research and I publish these things, but it continues to sort of evolve in my thinking over time. And as I sort of think about these constructs and how they really fit together, and as the science is dynamic and changing, um, I think what's exciting and, and where I would like to sort of move my research is we now have the tools to actually look in the brain 
and see the different patterns of activation that occur when people are under different conditions of, you know, and when they're learning or when they're in flow or when they're being controlled or not by the therapist. And I think we're going to begin to combine the behavioral and physiological even better than we have done in the past um, to build, you know, the evidence for sort of what's happening in the brain. You know, we talk about plasticity and creating interventions that enhance plasticity, but we really don't know what those are. You know, and we're, we're going a lot on some of the animal studies. And uh, so I, I guess the aha for me is um, science is so dynamic. Our field is so dynamic. And I, you know, the story is never ending. You know, it's not like, okay, we've done it. You know, that's it. I can close the book on this. It's like, it's like, uh, unpacking layers of an onion uh, and we're we're in that process and our profession has been doing that sort of beautifully um, and I think we're we're coming of age and that that's I don't know if that's an aha but that's a sort of a a I'm very proud you know of, of where our profession has come from makes me you know You proud too? Yes. Well, you've been a big part of it. I mean, if you talk, look. I mean, you're one of the first to do motor learning. I mean, you really have brought a big part of that to the field. So mm -hmm. you should be proud. Well, I am, and I, I have, um, and I'm not done yet. So, by <laughs> <laughs> good. Although, you know, I'm getting kind of worn out because, you know, in addition to this eye care trial, I direct a rehabilitation engineering research center that's mm -hmm. uh, funded by NIDER. That's a whole nother, you know, uh, that's a whole nother side of what I'm doing. And it's, you know, deals with a whole different set of people. You know, I'm dealing with biomedical engineers and, uh, you know, getting them to sort of understand, you know, what, you know, the, this beautiful interface. Uh, and, you know, and that's, that's been challenging, but at the same time, very rewarding. And I've, you know, I've watched things like, you know, VR, exercise-based, you know, VR kinds of things and robotics and, you know, and I'm a, very much a part of that. Um, and very much a part of saying, you know, yes, but this is not just a piece of equipment. <laughs> We're interacting with a human being, you know, and, and how can we as a profession stay ahead of this? We don't want to be, you know, driven by, you know, the engineers. We want to be interacting with the engineers and, and taking this, you know, to the next front in a, you know, in a reasoned way that, that we're proud of. So how do you see technology impacting physical therapy in the future? Very much as a, uh, as a, almost a subfield of rehabilitation where we work as a team, you know, with the engineers and with our patients and with community programs. We've got to get out of the hospital setting and, I mean, not that, you know, we, we've got to, we do things in the hospital setting, but our population is aging. 
you know, in 2050, there's going to be 70 million people over the age of 65. This is happening rapidly. And at the same time, we are having major changes in technology. I mean, just think about the last time you, you know, you uh, bought a computer. You know, these things last maybe three years. And then, you know, all the bandwidth problems are, you know, are solved and you've got more capacity and there's more memory and there's higher speed. All that is going to influence, already has started influencing what we do. So we've got to embrace that. We've got to, you know, there's an exponential rise. So I think we have to be, and this is what our Rehab Engineering Research Center is really all about. We just had our State of the Science Conference and, you know, I had folks, you know, from all over coming and talking about, you know, the future. We've got to be writing our proposals for the future, not, you know, stuck back in, you know. So people are using their their apps for everything. This is what we have to do. We have to be part of that leadership, though. We can't just be sort of the technician that takes, you know. And I think you're seeing that. You're seeing people in our, in our field who are taking leadership and uh, moving this forward. Your list of students and PhD students reads like a who's who of the neurology section. So pick one of your students and tell me a story about him. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about Laura Boyd. Okay. Um, so I meet with my students once a week regularly. And uh, they come in, they tell me what they're doing, and, you know, we, you know it's an it's a, you know, intense discussion, but it, I think it's really, really important. So she was, you know, coming, doing her regular meetings with me, and I uh, used to have this bowl of um, chocolate-covered espresso beans on my table. And I didn't notice, but, you know, she would go in there and she just, you know, during our discussion, she'd be popping, you know, four or five of these things. And um, she didn't even realize she was doing this. So after about, you know, six months or something, she only told me this later, but mm -hmm. after about six months, she, uh, she would get these major stomach aches after her meetings with me. And she didn't realize that it was because of the chocolate-covered espresso beans. She thought it was, you know, that she was getting stressed and, you know. So she developed this sort of anxiety reaction, you know. And so <laughs> then it got to the point where before the meeting, she would get a stomach ache. <laughs> Is that a learned behavior? Operant yeah, operant conditioning, exactly. <laughs> so um, she then figured it out. Uh, and told me later, she said, I have to tell you, you know, I would just get these anxiety attacks and I'd have stomach aches and everything. And then I finally realized it was the <laughs> chocolate covered espresso beans. She said, so you should warn people <laughs> when they're sitting there having, you know, their meetings with you, they shouldn't be popping these things automatically. That's, a, that's a story about Laura. You have to have similar stories about Excite and some of the other oh. work that you've done. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm wondering how many of them are shareable. So one comes to mind. Okay, you can You'd like me. to share about trying to find a martini bar oh, in Birmingham, in Alabama. In Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> in the heat of the summer, 
we were all just sweltering. I mean, we were unbelievably just sweltering. And we decided we were going to take Sarah Blanton. She'd never had a martini before, a vodka martini. And so I was going to introduce her to uh, vodka martinis. And what, what happened? We, we had an unbelievable time finding a place that would even knew what it was. You were instructing the bartender, weren't you? <laughs> That's right. How to shake it and what to do and where to put the ice and, you know, how many olives you needed. Yeah, but it was the shaking, yeah. Finding the right vodka, that was also very difficult. They, yeah, I remember that. We had a hard time. We went through a whole list before we, did. we got one that I was acceptable. I think we finally settled on <laughs> Kettle One, which was not my first choice. I first asked for Belvedere. They didn't know what that was. I think then Grey Goose. Goose, yeah, they didn't have that. I think they had Kettle One. And so I said to Sarah, well, this isn't, you know, the best, but, you know. Did she like so, it? So, yeah, she did like it. Okay. <laughs> In the heat. Yeah. <laughs> we right. all liked it. Yeah, we just wanted to go numb at that point. You know, we were just so, we were fried. Two and weeks. Two weeks in Birmingham, Alabama, in the summer, and we were in session like, you know, all day, and and then we'd have these evening sessions. Right. It was brutal. And and what was this for? This was a pre pre sort of training for the Excite right. trial, that actually got started in two thousand. Right. So we were we were all involved like beginning back in nineteen ninety eight. 98, 99. Six, actually. We did the pilot work in 1997. Okay. All right. So we did pilot work, submitted the proposal in 98, I think. Mm -hmm. It got uh, reviewed. They wanted revision. They turned in the revision in 99, and it was uh, funded in 2000. So we were in, that's hard to believe, it was 13 years ago. I know. Yeah. Well, I hear I'm also supposed to ask you about your tattoo. It's not a tattoo. <laughs> I don't have a tattoo, but I do have a navel ring. <laughs> yeah, so this harks back, of course, to my, you know, my uh, days uh, during the sort of anti-war, anti-establishment um, flower child upbringing. And uh, I was actually, now that I'm thinking about what motivated this, uh, there are some people who had to do with this. So uh, I was about ready to turn 50. And uh, the CS, this was a combined sections meeting, because my birthday's in February, and we were at, uh, in New Orleans. So this was in, what, when did I turn 50? Uh, you don't have to share that. Anyway, okay, so we were in New Orleans, and um, a number of my students were also there, and colleagues. And Kathleen Ganley, so I'm going to name some names, uh, said to me, um, so Kathleen Ganley was... I think she was a PhD pro student at the time in our program. She was not my student. Laura Boyd was a student of mine then. 
Uh, Pan uh, Samporn Onla Or from Thailand was a student of mine at that time. We were all in New Orleans together. And Kathleen got a group of people together and said to me, we have made appointments at the um, piercing store, this famous piercing place uh, in New Orleans uh, called Rings of Desire, which Ooh. is no longer there. Uh, and there was this woman there who was very well known in the piercing community. By the way, there's a professional association of piercers. You probably are getting more information than you want. <laughs> and her name was Angel. And she ran this place, and it was top-notch. You know, they did highly professional, sterile, everything was, you know, well done, came highly, you know, if, if there were stars associated with it. So Kathleen said, we've made an appointment, uh, and if you want to come and, uh, you know, have a navel ring, uh, you're welcome to come. And uh, so I thought, wow, this might be interesting you know, celebrate my 50th. So I decided I was going to go. And uh, we were having dinner the night before this appointment. And uh, my student from Thailand uh, was there. And she said to me, um, uh, well, if you do this, I'll do it. And then she found out I was going to do it. <laughs> so she said, okay, I'll do it. So you're busting. So we all, yeah. So we all went in and got uh, pierced, and uh, and I went home and showed my husband, and he loved it, and uh, they did a great job. So I came back to you know the session, and you know you, you kind of can't you know you sort of have to sit like this. So I was sitting in the back of the room like this. And I remember telling Jim Gordon that I had just gotten my navel pierced. It was like. <laughs> <laughs> That was fun. We had a good time. So yeah. what? We've had a lot of good times. We've had a lot of good times. We have. And that, you know, it's a really, it's friends and colleagues uh, and students who've gone off and, you know, done just such wonderful things. And that's really great to see. That's, I'm very proud of that. And, and I love, you know, seeing my friends and colleagues when I come to these meetings. You know, it's, we... Those of us that have been around for a while, you know, there's a camaraderie and a, sort of a shared experience, and um, and that's a beautiful part of our profession as well. So, other than your professional endeavors, what do you do for fun? Some of what I do for fun, I can't speak publicly about, but okay. <laughs> but other things, uh, I really enjoy traveling. Um, my husband and I have a home on the Oregon coast that just nourishes me. We try to go up there for several weeks in the summer. It's on the ocean. It's beautiful. It's relaxing. It's kind of where I get, I decompress. And that's really important for me because I, um, I obviously lead a very intense professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, living in L.A., is intense it's you know and so I need I need a place where I can you know reflect and relax and and cook and hike and you know look at the beauty 
of nature, which I love. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't get to do that uh, as much as I'd like. So I really, that's, that's part of what I do. Any last questions? If you had, if you could go back, rewind, is there anything that you'd change? I don't think there's anything I would change. I don't think, I think every experience I had, even maybe at the time that it was uh, challenging or uncomfortable or frustrating, as I look back on it, it taught me something. And I grew as a person um, from it. And so I, I, I don't view it as, you know, as something I would change at all. Well, thank you very, very much for meeting with us today and sharing your thoughts, and I look forward to seeing you at next year's CSF. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. It was, it was fun. <laughs>